Technically, we're talking about last week's parasha, Vaira, but obviously every parasha is timeless, so uh, it doesn't matter. Ultimately, learning is learning, but in terms of the schedule, this is the parasha of last week. And the, uh, of course, the beginning of the uh, series of makot that are going to be visited upon Paro in the course of Yitziat Mitzrayim, the exodus from Egypt. So the question that everybody asks, and I think it's a question that we address probably every time we study this parasha, even though uh, I want to move into the uh, I want to move into the meat and potatoes of the parasha, so to speak, a little bit. But I, I did want to just highlight one of the uh, important uh, important questions that's raised. And that uh, I often mention at the outset of Parashat Vayra, the question of why is it that Moshe Rabbeinu, the beginning of the parasha basically begs for an explanation because it's almost as if Hashem is starting this conversation and the mission of Moshe Rabbeinu all over again. We see that uh, Hashem is almost introducing himself to Moshe Rabbeinu again. Uh, that God speaks to Moshe and says, I am Hashem, I appeared to Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov with the name El Shaddai, which was the name by which the Avot uh, recognized God, which means to say that they had an understanding of God that was based upon um, their seeing of God's uh, actions in nature primarily. But I did not make myself known to them by the name of Hashem, Yudkevavke, the four-letter name of Hashem that we don't pronounce in, according to its... Uh, actual uh, lettering. It, and the question, and then it goes on to describe the situation of the Jewish people in um, in Egypt and how Hashem plans to extract them from there and so on. And he sends Moshe back. And of course, Moshe says that they won't listen to me because they're enduring such difficult work and I'm not able to speak. I'm, I, I, I have difficulty expressing myself. Why is this conversation recurring? We already saw this conversation in the uh, in the previous parasha, Parashat Shemot, where Moshe Rabbeinu resists uh, accepting the task that Hashem wants to place upon him and the responsibility of uh, leading the Jews out of Mitzrayim. Why is Hashem rehashing that completely as if Moshe and Hashem have never had this discussion before? It's very odd. And so one of the key points that needs to be mentioned and understood to appreciate what happens in Parashat Vayran, Parashat Bo is what changes in Moshe Rabbeinu's conception of his own mission. Because we have to keep in mind that Hashem never changes, but people and circumstances in the physical world change. And that includes our understanding of our mission, our understanding of our purpose changes. And Moshe Rabbeinu, uh, as we saw at the end of Parashat Shemot, pretty miserably fails in his first attempt to save the Jews from their oppression. In fact, he causes, and unwittingly obviously, causes Paro to become upset and to impose even more harsh uh, demands upon the Jews in their slavery. So um, the actions of Moshe Rabbeinu backfire, the actions of Moshe Rabbeinu are counterproductive, and Moshe Rabbeinu himself comes to, Mo- to Hashem and says, why have you sent me from the time that I've come in your name, it's only gotten worse for the Jewish people. And the last pasuk of Shemot, of Parashat Shemot was, you're going to see that uh, what I do uh, and how I'm going to save the Jewish people. You will now see what I'm going to do. Because with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will chase them from his land. Now, the idea or the concept being that uh, Hashem is reassuring Moshe. Moshe perhaps began to doubt whether he would be able to, uh, to reach the goal of his mission, and he in fact saw himself as a failure and, and believed that uh, his actions had caused more harm than good to Am Yisrael. What is going on here? And is there any way we can explain the transition from that to the reopening and uh, d- discussion here of the mission of Moshe that sounds as if Moshe and Hashem have never had a conversation before? And so the, the simple answer to this is that Moshe Rabbeinu shifted his perspective on the mission <clears throat> in a very basic way from a political mission to, uh, which was what he originally thought. He, he conceived of it as a political mission. He was going to petition the Paro on behalf of God, obviously, but still he saw it as a political task that he had to go and, and convince, uh, convince Paro to allow the Jewish people to be released from bondage. And if you notice, in Parashat Shemot, there's no indication of, at all that Moshe performed any miracles in front of Paro. Yes, it does say that he did in front of the people in order to convince them that he was really representing Hashem. But when he came to Paro, he simply came in and said, so says the God of Israel, 
or the God of the Hebrews, you must let my people go that they should serve me. So if you look at it from the context, last week's parasha, there's no indication in the conversation between Moshe and Paro that Hashem is the one actually who is liberating the Jews from Egypt. It sounds as if Moshe is the one who is meant to liberate the Jews from Egypt. And, and he comes, of course, he says it in the name of God. He speaks as a messenger of God. But he seemed to believe that his rhetoric alone uh, it, it would be the saving grace that would change the mind of Paro and allow the Jews to be freed from their enslavement. And we, and we can actually trace back that same conception to the original resistance of Moshe Rabbeinu to this mission that he said, I don't know how to speak and I don't know how to articulate and I don't know how to express myself. Whatever it means, whether it means that he had a physical speaking impediment, uh, you know, speech impediment such as a stutter or a lisp or whatever, however it's portrayed, or whether it simply means that he's not a good speaker. He's just not well-spoken. He's not articulate. Um, the the, uh, the Ralbag, one of the commentaries, traces this back. He says, you know, people whose minds are in a different world, somebody like Moshe Rabbeinu, whose mind is on such a high level of, of depth and, and abstraction in his thinking, will have difficulty communicating the ideas he's thinking about to an ordinary person. We could think about it in today's terms as like the absent-minded professor. Everybody's had that teacher who was kind of in another world and didn't really connect with the students and tried, definitely knew something and understood something, but wasn't successful in bridging the gap between him or herself and the audience. And so that's really the, um, well, how the Ralbag explains it. But whatever the case may be, the point is that Moshe Rabbeinu resisted the mission based on his own lack of rhetorical skill. And that suggested that he perceived the mission as a political mission, a mission, uh, he was an ambassador of God to Paro, but ultimately it's the ambassador's job to secure the deal and he was unsuccessful and a failure. And he didn't use any miracles in dealing with Paro because his understanding was that the miracles, yes, were there <clears throat> to convince the Jewish people that he was authentically representing God, but ultimately he was intended to do as little supernatural uh, you know, it, it was supposed to be a supernatural encounter with Paro. It was simply supposed to be a conveying of a message and, and uh, a, an instruction of Paro and perhaps a guiding of Paro towards the truth that he should make the right choice in letting the Jewish people go. And that failed. And Hashem uh, then, in a way, gives a, a kind of a harsh response to Moshe because Moshe is, is, is worried, is upset that the people now have turned against him. The people no longer trust him. They feel that siding with Moshe Rabbeinu is going to get them in more trouble than, uh, than they, they were in before. And they, they blame Moshe Rabbeinu for the worsening of their fate. And Moshe Rabbeinu is trapped and Hashem says, you will see what I do to Paro because I am going to force him to release the Jewish people. It's not going to be about you, Moshe, that you came in. Imagine, we just need to imagine for a moment what it would have been like had Moshe Rabbeinu waltzed into the palace of the Pharaoh, given an impassioned speech about God and what God expected, about justice and, and about uh, fairness to the Jewish people and about allowing them to serve their God. And suddenly if Paro had transformed his perspective and and changed his policy and released the Jews, nobody would be thinking about God anymore. Everybody would be attributing the impact to the, um, to the rhetorical skill or the educational uh, skill, let's say even, of Moshe Rabbeinu, similar to Yosef, that Yosef was able to educate, as we spoke about when we discussed Paro, the Paro that Yosef dealt with, how Yosef actually educated the people in Egypt. He educated the head of the prison. He educated even Potiphar. He educated the Paro. You see that they all perceive the hand of God and what Yosef is doing, which means that the only way they could have had that understanding or idea would be if Yosef had explained it to them. Yosef was an educator, and so perhaps people would have credited well, credited Moshe Rabbeinu with the success. It would have been that the Jewish people were saved by Moshe Rabbeinu. And of course, we know that the Torah is very much against that. The Torah is against that. And we talked about this also in Parashat Vayichi, when we talked about Yaakov now wanting to be deified. That the Torah is dead set against any kind of attribution of superpowers or uh, uh, assigning any person, uh, uh, this person is our savior, this person is our ultimate hero, this person is in some way perfect, ideal, or, or a, super, a superhero, or any kind of uh, larger-than-life uh, characteristic we avoid attributing to people because it is in human nature to seek that kind of thing. It's human nature to try to make a person like God or to make God like a person. 
And the reason for that is because we want to feel closer to God and we want to feel, uh, it, we don't want to feel that we are distant from God. And, um, and it's, it's more comforting to have a God-like figure who is concrete and close to us and we can, with whom we can identify. And so therefore there's a tremendous temptation in that. And of course the Egyptians also attributed some supernatural qualities to Moshe Rabbeinu eventually, but that wasn't the goal. And so Hashem deliberately so, wanted, so to speak, willed that Moshe Rabbeinu should fail in his first attempt to change the mind and the heart of Paro so that Moshe would realize that he alone was powerless and that he didn't even have the coalition of the Jewish people anymore behind him because they had abandoned him and he was now on his own uh, trying to fight for this cause. Um, and that he would uh, now have to recognize that the, the success or failure was not contingent on himself, was, gonna, was going to be contingent on Hashem and not on his own prowess or his own skills. And that's why he didn't need to worry. Hashem was trying to tell him, you don't need to worry about your rhetorical skill. You don't need to worry about whether you know how to choose the right words. You don't need to worry about uh, <clears throat> your, your ability to communicate because it's going to be in the hands of God. And, and originally, because Moshe assumed that that was an overstatement and that really he would have to be the one to uh, deliver the message and to secure the, uh, the, the success. So therefore, he, he attributed the failure to himself as well. In this case, Hashem is telling him the, the failure was on purpose. I don't want it to be that Moshe saved the Jewish people from Egypt. I don't want it to be that Moshe freed the Jewish people from Egypt. I don't want it to be that the skill of Moshe was what put the pressure on Paro. Um, it's a, we, have a, we have an example of that, um, the exact same phenomenon. And today with Martin Luther King Jr., uh, his memory being, uh, you know, honored today and the activities that he did in his, in his career where his, uh, obviously, um, what, what the similarity, which is really remarkable when you look at his speeches and you look at his writings is how he definitely connected his mission, uh, with a religious vision. And he spoke about God a lot and he really was more a preacher than a political leader. If you listen to his speeches, not only the style, but even the content is, you know, saturated with religious imagery and his writings are saturated with religious imagery. And the vision that really moved the people that were related to him uh, and connected to him was that religious vision. It was a spiritual vision, actually, that he used to motivate the people. And it was very much rooted in the Tanakh, actually. A lot of his messages were, were verses drawn right out of the Tanakh, describing justice and describing freedom and equality and so on. So he was very much attuned to a religious, uh, he understood that that a religious um, inspiration was what the people needed in order to unify them. And that's how he saw himself as a religious leader, I think, more than anything else. And he saw social, social justice as a religious mandate. If you look at um, the people around him, I saw a documentary this year for the first time. It was actually very interesting. Some of the, uh, some of the original uh, so, civil rights leaders who were with uh, Martin Luther King Jr. During, uh, you know, during those years, are most of the people who speak in the documentary were actually there at the time. I think it was made in 2018. There's some other people on there too. Uh, some of them are uh, uh, people that we, we recognize for good, some maybe not so much for good, but, uh, but the fact was they were there and so they report, a, uh, they report to us um, an authentic uh, um, you know, a sense of, of what he was like and what was going on at the time. And one of the, one of the messages that I saw in this documentary that I thought was remarkable um, was that he was the centrality of the, of the religious messaging to his, uh, to his speeches and to his vision. And I think that that's clear if you really look at it. But at the same time, even though there was a religious messaging, and I think this is where it's different, um, where it's similar is that there's an idea that the real liberation comes from the hand of God and that we have to be instrumental to that. But ultimately, it's about, it's about being equal in the sight of God and uh, about, the, about divine justice and being agents of divine justice. That we, uh, that, that is a similarity. What's different is that uh, in our society, we end up associating achievements with a person, with a personality. And because he was the mouthpiece of the mission and the vision, and because he was so articulate and his rhetoric was so powerful and moving, so therefore we end up 
attaching the successes of the civil rights movement and everything that he inspired, not to, the, not to God, even though he was constantly talking about God, and not to religion, even though he was talking about religion all the time, and not to any transcendent value, but we attach it to him as a person and we make a day, not saying we, I'm saying our society, expresses its appreciation of what he accomplished by commemorating him as an individual and uh, making him larger than life instead of focusing on the redemptive message that he actually preached and uh, which had a lot of value to it. Um, you, might, you might find some things to criticize in it and some things where we, we might not agree with, you know, with points that he made. There's no person who's infallible and there's not a person that... Uh, that we agree with everything that they uh, that they say, but there's certainly um, there's certainly a lot of truth and a lot of substance to things that he wrote. He was definitely a brilliant person, and is you know, and he was an incredible communicator. So in that sense, he was different than Moshe Rabbeinu because Moshe Rabbeinu didn't have the natural rhetorical skill of uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, and therefore that's and, and and that was precisely the point that God didn't want to choose a person who had those skills because then the rhetoric and the aura of the personality of Moshe Rabbeinu would be the center of the drama instead of the content of the message that he was conveying, much like we see in the case of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., where if you read his writings, you see that he was a very a profound thinker and obviously very courageous in uh, his commitment to his beliefs and his convictions, and yet it becomes about him instead of about those, that message a lot of times. We do talk about the message, but we like to focus on personalities and events more than we like to focus on ideas. So in this case, we don't want it to be that way. We want it to be that Moshe Rabbeinu, of course, is a great teacher. We call him Moshe Rabbeinu, our teacher. But we never want the idea of redemption to be tied, linked to an individual. And this is why you see that even Moshe Rabbeinu almost dies on his way down to Egypt the first time because he didn't give a brit milah to his son. That's a whole story in its own right why that's significant. But the main issue that I wanted to mention is that you see that even Moshe Rabbeinu is not indispensable. No person is indispensable. We, uh, you know, and, uh, and the... Uh, there's always the possibility. I mean, there's, we say, God has many uh, shlichim. He has many different messengers, many different uh, avenues that he can use to achieve his objective. And so there's no one person who is the be all and end all. And so this puts Moshe Rabbeinu, in a sense, back in his context. And the makot are about shifting the focus from a conversation between Moshe Rabbeinu and Paro to a conversation actually between Paro and Hashem that's being mediated by Moshe Rabbeinu. And that's the key transition in this parasha. So Hashem is now speaking to uh, Moshe Rabbeinu again and, sp- and speaks about himself. I am Hashem and I made myself known to the Avot and I'm going to make myself known to the Jewish people and I'm going to bring them out of Egypt and save them and take them as a people and be for them as a God. And you're going to know that I am God who took you out from under the burdens of Egypt. And I'm going to take you to the promised land. And I'm going to give it to you as an inheritance. I am God. So you see the focus on Ani Hashem, Ani Hashem. I am God, meaning I am the one who's really behind this. It is, Moshe Rabbeinu is merely a, uh, is only a, uh, a spokesperson. Of course, the people are so busy and they're so tired that they cannot anymore listen to Moshe Rabbeinu's speeches, Moshe Rabbeinu's address to them. And in fact, they've become embittered and they've become wary of getting behind any kind of a revolutionary movement because they saw that last time it cost them dearly. So it's not going to be, so again, you see very interestingly, it's not going to be won. This battle is not going to be won based on the rhetoric of Moshe Rabbeinu and the powerful speeches and the moving speeches and the soaring rhetoric. That's not how it's going to be won. Uh, the way that perhaps in a certain sense, Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, accomplished a lot of what he did with those skills that he had. And it's not going to be one also from a popular movement, which is another element of the civil rights uh, cause and the civil rights achievements in this country, that they were mainly, uh, the, the 
the results that they generated were mainly because of the numbers of people behind them. There were so many people gathering for these marches and for these, uh, and for these uh, uh, protests and so on, that uh, that was what put pressure on the government to respond and to, uh, to pass legislation that made things more uh, equitable and, and fair for all of us, really. It benefits all of us, the, the legislation that was passed. Um, the people in Alabama who were beating and lynching black people did not like Jewish people either. So, um, you know, hatred and uh, injustice and intolerance are, uh, uh, you know, not limited to one minority group. They tend to, the people who hate one group tend to hate them all. And so we all benefit from the legislation that was uh, passed and from the accomplishments of those civil rights uh, leaders, many of whom uh, died in the process of trying to uh, change this country. But how did they reach their goal? Through soaring and powerful rhetoric, which was a common tool in the toolbox of civil rights leaders, and also through popular uprising and protest and civil disobedience and whatever else they used to try to express their displeasure and exert pressure on lawmakers to change the way things were done. So this also is not what Moshe Rabbeinu is going to do because Moshe Rabbeinu is now unable to enlist. He can't even get a he can't even get anyone to listen to him anymore. He can't even get anybody to uh, give him the time of day because number one, they're too busy, they're too exhausted, and they got burned last time because they listened to him and they backed him and he went in and what did Paro do? He said, oh, you guys have too much time on your hands if you're listening to these nonsense things from Moshe. From Moshe. I'm just going to make your work harder and I'm going to make you have to get straw in addition to making the, uh, in addition, you know, and to uh, making the bricks. You're going to have to go gather the straw and I'm still going to expect the same quotas. And of course, everyone's getting beaten and it's horrible and it's even more unjust than it was previously. So <clears throat> this, they don't want to get involved. So we don't have a popular backing of Moshe Rabbeinu to put pressure on the administration, so to speak, which would have been a concern even for somebody like Paro to have a rebellion, an uprising within the ranks of the uh, government. And we know that he was worried about that because uh, he didn't want his per- his persecution of the Jews to be too obvious in the beginning. He didn't want it to be so obvious. He asked the ma- the uh, the midwives to quietly kill the children and not make a big deal out of it until that was unsuccessful. So he was trying to keep unrest uh, at a minimum. And so, but Moshe Rabbeinu cannot now marshal that to his uh, advantage, and nor does he have the rhetorical uh, success that he had hoped. So we come into the next phase of the. Uh, of the uh, conflict, which is the be- the beginning of the supernatural, the supernatural uh, interaction uh, of the makot and the and the otot, the different signs. You also see here another very very interesting thing that all of a sudden we get in in the second uh, aliyah of the parasha, we get a list of the uh, the genealogy of the Jewish people, but it's a stunted genealogy. It's only it only goes up to Moshe Rabbeinu. It tells us about Bnei Ruven, Bnei Shimon. And then it talks about Bnei Levi, and among Bnei Levi, of course, is ultimately Amram, who is the father of Moshe. And then it talks about Aaron, and it talks about Moshe, and it talks about how they were, um, how they, these were the ones who spoke to Paro, the king of Egypt, to take Bnei Israel out of Egypt. This is Moshe and Aaron. And what is the need for this genealogy? What is the need for reminding us that Moshe Rabbeinu is a Jew? For telling us about the children of Ruven and Shimon and Levi and then finally tracing Levi all the way down to Moshe and to Aaron. What, and, and talking about who, who, their, their wives and, and, and children. It's a very strange introduction. I mean, we already know who Moshe Rabbeinu is from before. Why do we now have this? And And again, Moshe again protesting that he doesn't have the rhetorical ability. And Hashem says, don't worry, I'm going to be with you. Why do we need now to get the familial background on Moshe Rabbeinu? Isn't this something that we're already aware of from the past? Uh, how could it be that a person is entering in to this, um, uh, to reading the story and doesn't know who Moshe Rabbeinu is? Why wouldn't that have, and if we need to know, shouldn't we have had that already in Parashat Shemot, an introduction to Moshe Rabbeinu, where he came from, who his parents were, and so on uh, in advance? So, first of all, interesting to note that if we look back at Parashat Shemot, we don't actually see who Moshe Rabbeinu's parents were. What does it tell us? A man from the house of Levi went and he took a daughter of Levi and they had a child. 
And it talks about his sister, the sister of the child. And of course, when Hashem speaks to Moshe, he makes reference to Aharon, Achicha HaLevi. Aharon, your, your, your brother, the Levi, is also able to speak and will be able to help you. But it never mentions the full background of Moshe Rabbeinu. What Shevet he came from, where that Shevet stands relative to the other Shvatim, and what the uh, exact parentage of Moshe Rabbeinu was, Amram and Yochevet. This is the first we're hearing of them. So it's funny, on one hand, that we, were, we already had a pretty significant series of stories about Moshe Rabbeinu, starting from his birth, all the way through his time in the Pharaoh's uh, palace, through the time that he runs away to live with Yitro, and through the time that he initially comes to, con- he has the, he's given the task of liberating the Jews, and he confronts Paro for the first time unsuccessfully. All of this were given without really any background on who Moshe Rabbeinu is until now. We only know that he came from the house of Levi and that he had a brother named Aaron. That's all that we've been given up till now in terms of details. But we kind of forget that and we read back into the previous parasha uh, details about his biography that we really learn only now. Why is it out of order like that? So again, it seems like the Torah is sending a message uh, that once again puts Moshe Rabbeinu in the proper context. Just like we saw that Moshe Rabbeinu, it's not going to be based upon his skill and his rhetorical uh, prowess that he is able to uh, liberate the Jews from Egypt. It's going to be as a result of Hashem's intervention. That's for sure. But also, Moshe Rabbeinu has to see himself as a member of the Jewish people. And we see him as not just this sort of like hero coming out of the middle of nowhere, this mystery man, <clears throat> which adds to the mystique that we would attribute to Moshe Rabbeinu. He's not a mystery man. He's not just some random person from Levi, but he's very much a part of the Jewish family, starting with Reuven, then Shimon, then Levi. It doesn't have to show you all 12 of the tribes to make the point. The point is that we start with Reuven and Shimon, not because we need to talk about Reuven and Shimon. We really need just to get to Levi, but just to show that Moshe Rabbeinu is a part of the Jewish family. He's a part of the Jewish nation. He's coming as a representative of God, but he's coming as a representative of the Jewish people. He is a member of that people, and he shares in the fate and the destiny of Am Yisrael. He's not just an outsider who has re-entered the picture in order to um, interfere with the Jewish people, but he identifies with and is a part of Am Yisrael himself. So that is an important perspective as well, because we know from other cases in the Torah, and I don't want to give, I don't want to go too far afield of what we're, uh, what we're learning tonight, but there are other cases where mitzvot are really designed. I would say there are many mitzvot, that the, the purpose of which is to remind us that we are members of a nation greater than ourselves, that we are individuals that have a relationship with God, but we're also members of a community. And that is a, is, an, is a critical awareness to have in everything that we do. So when we, uh, for example, we're wearing tzitzit, wearing tzitzit is a good example of that. Wearing tzitzit is, a, is clothing. Clothing identifies us as part of a social group, as part of a nation. We're a nation that are servants of God. We wear the tzitzit that remind us like a uniform that we are part of the nation of God, just like a uniform of a, an army officer or uh, somebody in the Marines or a police officer or whoever it is, reminds them, makes them aware of their group identity, not just their individual identity. And so that makes us aware of our group identity. Praying with a minyan makes us aware that we are not just at this alone, but we are part of a group that is serving God. So Moshe Rabbeinu also needs to be seen, not just as this individual who's larger than life, but as a descendant of Avram Yitzchak and Yaakov himself from one of the Shvatim, who is given a special job to do, but he's given that special job in the context of being a member of the Jewish people who both is subject to the fate of the Jewish people and is also a part of the future of the Jewish people, not someone who stands uh, independently. So even though he had, been, he had run away, even though he had lived in the house of the Pharaoh, he had run away to Midian for all those years, he needed to be fully situated in his Jewish identity as a part of the people in order to be an effective messenger, an effective, uh, you know, an effective representative of the Jewish people and of Hashem. And so this is a, a critical shift as well. Putting Moshe Rabbeinu not just as a mystery man of Levi, but as a part of the Jewish people is critical. And now he comes and the first thing that Moshe Rabbeinu does, and everybody wonders about this when we turn to the fourth aliyah. Now notice that the first three aliyot of the parasha of Vayra, I'm just mentioning this one last time. Maybe I'm belaboring the point a little bit, but the first three aliyot, if you cut out the first three aliyot from parasha Vayra, 
you could read from Parashat Shemot into Parashat Vayera with no problem. Because it's all reiterating things that we more or less knew before. It's amplifying them a little bit in terms of the, uh, gene, the precise uh, family background of Moshe Rabbeinu, who was his mother, who was his father, uh, and so on. But uh, other than that, most of what we read is content that we could have, I, we could, would have been more or less aware of, at least somewhat, from what we read in Shemot. And, and if a person just skipped from the end of the book of Shemot, the end of this, of Parashat Shemot to, to the fourth Aliyah, uh, where Hashem tells Moshe to now go to Paro and to throw down his staff and it's going to become a snake, you wouldn't even notice that you were missing any critical part of the narrative. So these first three Aliyot here, this first section, is not adding anything to the narrative. It's not really adding anything to the story, to the drama. It's adding something to the perspective. It's Moshe Rabbeinu and the reader changing our perspective. This is not a magical man or a super, uh, a master of rhetoric or a great political leader, civil rights leader who is going to come with, di- with divine sounding rhetoric to liberate the Jews, but is someone who is simply a messenger of Hashem who is going to, and it's Hashem who's going to liberate the Jews. And this messenger is not an outsider, is not somebody who comes from the middle of nowhere, but is somebody who is well situated in the context of Jewish life and existence and is a part of the Jewish nation like everybody else. Now Hashem says to Moshe, go to Paro and throw down your staff and it's going to become a snake. And we all know this. And of course they do that. And Paro calls the Chachamim and the Mechashvim. He calls the so-called wise men and the magicians, and they are able to imitate Bilahatehim, which many of our commentators come to say means that it was trickery. It was sleight of hand that they did. Um, and they were able to, to have their stabs look, look like snakes, or more likely, they had snakes that were able to, they were able to hold in a certain way that made them look like stiff uh, rods. And then when they would throw them down, they were actually snakes. But what happened was that Aaron's staff eats the, uh, the snakes of the Egyptians. Um, and so the interesting question that, that arises here, and we see the same question with regard to the first Makkah, or the first two Makkot, Dam and Tzfardea, where uh, Moshe Rabbeinu uh, tells Paro that the, the water is going to turn to blood, and it does, and then the Egyptian magicians imitate that as well. And then when the frogs come, the Egyptians imitate that as well. And it's only when we come to Kinim for the first time, when we come to the uh, lice, that the Egyptian magicians are not able to imitate it anymore. So the question is, why does Hashem not just up the, take things up a notch from the beginning? Why does Hashem start out by having Moshe and Aaron do things that their opponents can do as well? Now, that doesn't mean that they're doing it on the same level. We see that Aharon is able to, his, his staff consumes the stabs of the, or the snakes of the magicians. And when it comes to the blood, yeah, they're able to take some blood, water and make it look like blood, but they're not, allowed to, they're not able to transform all of, the, all of the waters of Egypt into blood. And yeah, they can get some frogs to come up on land, but they're not able to get, a, a, you know, have a frog invasion that they're not able to do. But it seems like a matter of degree, not of kind. Why does Hashem, in this case, uh, send Moshe and Aaron for the first three makot to do things that can be imitated on any level by the Egyptian sorcerers? Why doesn't he skip right to Kinim and go to something that the Egyptian sorcerers have no way of trying to, uh, uh, trying to pretend? Why not? So seemingly the answer is, and I think this is a critical uh, principle for understanding the whole unfolding story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Hashem keeps a person's free choice intact for as long as possible. In the case of Paro as well, the ideal outcome would have been for Paro to exercise his free choice, recognizing God and uh, making the right decision to treat the Jewish people with justice and grant them their freedom. That would have been the right thing to do. And Hashem wants to give Paro as a human being, also created in the image of God. We don't like to think too charitably about Paro most of the time, but he was a human being who had the ability, he was created by God and had the divine image just like every other human being and had the ability to see the truth and had the ability, if he wanted to, to act on the truth. So the ideal is to lead a person with, as, with, the, with minimum level, minimal level of supernatural intervention to lead them to the truth. 
And when Moshe originally confronted Paro, he said, this is what Hashem, the God of the Hebrews says, let my people go. And Paro said, Lo yadati et Hashem. I don't know this God Hashem. Nor would I, even if I recognize God, let the Jewish people go. So Moshe Rabbeinu needs to change that recalcitrant and obstinate attitude of Paro. But Hashem wants Paro to be gradually led on. He doesn't want Paro to be overwhelmed and forced into making the right decision. He wants to give Paro the opportunity to choose freely. And so therefore, he starts out with things that are better than what the Egyptian magicians can do, but in the same category. Now, what does that mean? That means that a discerning person would have seen that what Aharon was doing was far superior to what the magicians were doing. And that Aaron was, that Aaron was a vehicle of God's divine intervention and that the Mechashvim were just tricksters and, uh, and, and charlatans and, uh, you know, and play, whatever kinds of uh, sleight of hand they were doing. It was you know, it, the oldest tricks in the book being replayed a million times, just like anybody who's seen any of those magicians. They cut people in half and they do this and that. It's the same tricks a million times, everybody knows. And people have even documented what the secrets are behind a lot of those tricks already. So uh, these Egyptians were doing the oldest tricks in the Egyptian book of tricks, whereas Aharon's, uh, the miracles that were performed through Aharon were, would have been clearly different to anyone who was looking for the truth. But at the same time, to anyone who was looking to deny to anybody who was looking to excuse, to anybody who was looking to refuse to accept the reality, there was plausible deniability. There was room to, uh, there was room to rationalize. So having the ability to rationalize is part of free choice because we can always rationalize, um, uh, you know, bad conduct. And it's the refusal to rationalize and a sense that no, we must do the right thing even when we can rationalize something else is a sign of real exercise of our freedom. And so that is what uh, Hashem was offering to Paro. I want to give you a situation where you would have to suspend your natural inclination to rationalize things away and see the truth for what it is. But I'm not going to make it so clear that it's undeniable because then you're not really exercising your free choice anymore. So the first thing with the staff doesn't get anywhere. The blood, which is, um, if you look at the makot carefully, you see that the severity of the makot increases in, uh, with each makah. The first three don't cause any lasting damage. The first, first of all, obviously the snake, the rod turning into a snake doesn't do anything long lasting at all, but the, um, that's just a sign. It's an ot, it's not a makah. The first makah is the blood, water turning to blood. Now, does the water turning to blood cause anybody any death or destruction? No. All it does is it causes the fish to die in the sea, that it does, but it doesn't cause any, um, any severe harm to the people uh, in Egypt. They were not necessarily affected in any significant way. It just says that they had to dig new wells in the ground in order to have fresh water to drink. But it doesn't say that the, it caused any death or destruction that was long-lasting. And in fact, the Torah goes so far as to say and this pasuk, I think, is really important—a really important pasuk that I've highlighted when, whenever I learned it. That um, it says that they that even though it became disgusting from the dead fish, and even though the people had to dig new wells around in order to drink, it says uh, that uh, that Paro was oblivious to it. Vayifen Paro. It says, first of all, the magicians imitated it. That allowed Paro to have a, a hard heart and not listen to them. And Paro turned and he went into his house and he didn't attend, he didn't have to focus his heart on it at all. And then it says, All of the people of Egypt dug around the river to find water to drink. Because they weren't able to drink from the, from the Nile itself. Now, what does it show you? Paro is barely impacted by this Makkah. Because Paro is not going to be the one to have to dig new wells. He's going to have his servants do it. And that's what he does. 
Right? So Vayifen el Beito, it says that Vayifen Paro Vayavol Beito, he just went inside his house and he didn't have to pay attention to it. He could ignore it. He could have the people outside working while he sat inside and they would bring him water as they found it. So it doesn't really affect Paro at all and he's able to deny it. Plus he has the fact that the magicians are imitating the Makkah as a, uh, as a rationalization for denying the real import of it. Now you'll notice that whenever Moshe introduces a Makkah, he introduces it with a message behind it. And the message behind it is directly in response to what Paro had said in their first encounter, which was, I don't know God and I will not send out the Jews. And so what does Hashem uh, want Moshe to say to Paro this time? Hashem says, let my people go. And it, Ko amar Adonai bezot Adonai. Hashem says, with this you will know that I am Hashem because I'm going to strike the water and it's going to become blood. Right? And so what does that mean? That means that you said you don't know God. That's what, that's what Paro originally said. Lo yadati Hashem, I don't know. So Moshe Rabbeinu says, this is what Hashem says now. With this you will know. You said you don't know, you're going to know. Now, what better way to teach somebody something than in a way that doesn't hurt them at all? It inconveniences the people. It stresses them out. But nobody really gets hurt. It's a, it's a little gross, dead fish. Okay, but nobody really gets hurt. Paro is able to go inside his house. He could have gone inside his house and thought about it, reflected, realized the truth, made a better decision. But there hasn't really been any, out, any, any significant uh, 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 fallout from this first Makkah. And that's the point. There's no significant fallout. And if you're willing to recognize that God is, is real, you can move on. But he doesn't. So the next Makkah infiltrates his house. And that makes perfect sense. Because since we see that the... Um, that the, 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 what Paro did to insulate himself, to protect himself fr- from, the, uh, uh, from the implications of the Makkah and to deny the uh, implications of the Makkah was that he went into his house, so the next Makkah invades his house, which is the Tzfardea. And, what, and Hashem again says that I'm going to bring the, uh, I'm going to bring the, uh, the frogs and they're going to enter your house. They're going to be in your bedroom and in your ovens and in your, and in your bowls, your mixing bowls, all over. And the idea is that this time you can't hide from them. Now, do, do frogs running around hurt you? Not really. Is it disgusting? Yes. Is it inconvenient? Yes. Is it unpleasant? For sure. But it doesn't cause any lasting harm. It doesn't cause any damage. It's just an annoyance. It's just any, like any other infiltration of vermin into the house. It's not the end of the world, but it's enough to make the person feel uh, disturbed, disturbed from their peace. Now it says the Khartoumim again were able to imitate that. They were able to get frogs to come out of the Nile and come onto the land, but not on the scale, obviously, of the, uh, that the plague did. And to the point that Paro this time actually calls Moshe and Aaron, the first time he didn't do anything. He just waited it out. But this time he actually calls them and he says, please take these away. Call out to God. Have him take them away. Now notice that Paro doesn't say you should take them away. He says, call out to God. And that's correct. Because the whole goal here was for Paro to recognize God. So he says, call out to God, have him remove the frogs from me, and I'll send the people, and then they can sacrifice to God. So it sounds like a good deal. But Moshe says to Parohit, you be in charge of me. You tell me what to do. When would you like me to have it that the frogs go away? I want you to see that this is not simply a, uh, uh, you know, a, a coincidence that they're going to go away, but it's actually by God's design. So for when should I ask God to make them go away? And Paro said, tomorrow. Now the Midrash and Rashi, of course, in the commentary say, why did he say tomorrow? Really, he should have wanted to uh, have it immediately. Why would he want to wait till tomorrow? The answer is that maybe he thought that the fact that Moshe was so willing to pray for him indicated that, the, and, and that Moshe Rabbeinu was probably ex- knew that these frogs were going to go away by themselves anyway right now. And he wanted to make it look like he was the one doing it with his prayer. So therefore he said to Paro, tell me when to do it. And, uh, and, par- and expecting Paro to say, do it right away. And instead, what did, uh, did Paro say? No, do it tomorrow. Okay? So, uh, so uh, that's one interpretation. The interpretation of Harav uh, Shmuel ben Chofni, one of the great geonim of our tradition, is that that was what it was. That Paro wanted to, thought that maybe Moshe knew that it was going to go away anyway. And therefore he, he said, no, no, let it go away tomorrow then. If you're really the one who's making the decision, let it go away tomorrow because you probably think I'm going to say today. So I'm going to throw you off and say tomorrow. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that, uh, that, uh, that when Moshe said that, 
um, he, he was saying, when do you want it done? So the, another interpretation is that Paro wanted to make it something impossible. Like, could all these frogs actually leave within one day? And Moshe Rabbeinu said, sure, they can leave within one day. Either way, it was some kind of a test of the reality of what was going on. And what does what Moshe Rabbeinu say? I want you to know that there is none like Hashem or God. These frogs are going to go away exactly as I'm telling you. So um, the, uh, the, the, first, the first and second makot are there to try to educate Paro towards the recognition of God and uh, to, to realize that, uh, that all this is happening uh, by the will of God uh, so that he'll make the right choice, but without causing him any real harm. And we see that Moshe calls out to God. And one of the questions that one asks is, why does Moshe Rabbeinu have to cry out to God every time? And that just underscores the point we made in the beginning of the Shi'or, which is that we don't want this to be about Moshe Rabbeinu versus Paro. This is Hashem versus Paro. And therefore, Moshe is not the one who stops or starts the Makkah. Moshe is the one who announces the Makkah. Moshe is the one who initiates it at the behest of Hashem. But Hashem is the one ultimately who stops it. And therefore, Moshe has to cry out to God to change the plan because Moshe is not the originator of the plan. He was told when the Makkah would be and he's going to have to ask God to withdraw the Makkah to show that it is Hashem who is the one who is behind it. And so, again, the, this time the frogs pile up throughout Egypt. It's very disgusting. It again uses the same word, vativash, just like it said about all the dead fish when the Nile turned to blood, that it became disgusting. So it says again, it became disgusting and there were piles of dead frogs everywhere, which should have been a reminder, which should have been somewhat, dis, you, know, uh, you know, it should have been uncomfortable. It should have made everything awkward and, and, uh, and, and should have prevented people from just going back to business as usual. But when Paro saw that there was relief from the actual plague, he stopped listening, hardened his heart, didn't listen, like Hashem said. And then the next Makkah is not even announced. The next Makkah is Kinim. And I just want to get up at least to that. Um, maybe next week we can do the rest of the Makkah as one uh, unit. But the, what is different about the Makkah of lice is number one, it's not announced. The third in every set is not announced. The first two are announced and the third one is not. So it's not announced because it's actually just a follow-up or a punishment for not having responded to the first two. And each one ends with a new message. Each one has a little bit of a new idea behind it. Now here is the first time that the, that the mechashvim or the chartumim, the magicians of Paro are not able to make anything that looks anything like the, uh, the lice. They're not able to imitate that at all. And what do they say to Paro? This is the finger of God that we're seeing here. And then it says, But Paro's heart was hard. He made his heart hard and he didn't listen. But what did they say? They said, Now most people interpret that to mean, that this is uh, the hand of God, meaning, you know what? Moshe Rabbeinu really is representing God. Moshe Rabbeinu really is speaking on behalf of the Creator. And we better listen. And it sounds like the Khartoumim are becoming tzaddikim here. But the Ibn Ezra, and I think really the pshat of it is, that they weren't saying that this is the hand of God, that therefore we should let the Jewish people go. They were saying, it's by Elohim, using the name Elohim, not Hashem. Because what is Moshe Rabbeinu always saying? You will know that I am Hashem, Yud Kevavke, that it's beyond nature. Elohim is God as expressed in nature. Meaning what they were saying was, this is just some natural phenomenon. Moshe and Aaron had nothing to do with this. Now remember, they had that, they could argue that because they knew that Moshe and Aaron didn't announce this plague. So maybe they just knew something about nature that was going to happen. There was going to be a swarm of uh, lice. And so they made it look like they did it. But really, it's just nature. They didn't really do it. It has nothing to do with them and nothing to do with any uh, anything else. It's simply blind nature happening here. Yes, it is beyond our control. It's not, it's not Moshe and Aaron are doing it because they wouldn't have the ability to manipulate the creation of lice in the air from the dust. That's not possible. But the, it, it, what is happening here is some natural phenomenon, some natural occurrence, not to be interpreted as anything more than that. Um, and that's why the, the Ibn Ezra says, he says, they didn't say this is the Etzba Hashem, Yud Kevavke. They said the name of Elohim, which means to say, that they didn't agree. They didn't agree that it had any significance. They just thought it was a natural disturbance that was happening there. And, but enough to recognize that this is not coming from Moshe and Aaron. There is something beyond human interference here, something beyond human action here. But we're stopping short of saying that it means that we should let the Jewish people go. We just recognize it's coming from a higher power in nature. So then if you notice, once they say that, 
So now, coming with the next makot, Hashem says, now I'm going to do, the makot that are going to come are going to distinguish between the Jewish people and the Mitzrayim. So the, the makah of Arov, of the wild beasts that come, that it affects the non-Jewish neighborhood, not the Jewish neighborhood. And then you have after Arov, you have Dever. You have the death of the animals. That occurs to the animals of the Egyptians, not to the Jews. And then you have uh, the, the Shechin Poreach. You have the boils, which seemingly happened only again to the Egyptians and not the Jews. And the same is going to be true with all of the makot that come from now on. Because once Paro recognized there's a force operating here that is beyond human understanding and control, it is definitely not magic what's happening here. That the Khartoumim, the magicians of Paro admitted. So then the question is, is there any design here? Is it just blind fate, blind chance? We're just having one terrible plague befall us after another, one natural disaster befall us after another? Or is there a rhyme and reason? Is there a design here? And therefore, in order to show that there's a purpose here, that Hashem is doing this with a specific result in mind to liberate the Jewish people, from now on the Makot are going to differentiate between uh, the Jewish people and the Mitzrim. And it's going to say, Ki en kamoni You will now know that there is none like me in all the land, for example, Hashem says. Or Hashem says um, that uh, when, when Moshe Rabbeinu inter, uh, introduces the Makkah uh, of Arov the first time, he says, you will know that I am Hashem in the midst of the land, meaning I have a plan, I have a purpose for human beings. And I distinguish between the human beings that serve me and those that do not, the ones who do right and the ones that are wrong. It's not blind fate operating. So the first step was for Paro and his, and his henchmen to recognize that there was something beyond the human manipulation that was happening. And then to recognize that that beyond was Hashem who had a purpose and a plan for the Jewish people that he was going to reveal in the upcoming Makot. So all of this is about an educational trajectory, really. It's about helping the Egyptians recognize God, recognize what the existence of God, knowing the existence of God means that we must do, that we have to act justly and compassionately, and we have to do the right thing, and we have to subordinate ourselves to God. This educational process benefited both the Jewish people and the Egyptians. They both gained from perceiving this. But had it been just a war of words between Moshe and Paro, had it just been a political campaign or a popular uprising under the leadership of Moshe, this idea would have been lost. This idea of God and God's plan wouldn't have been the focus. The focus would have been on the speeches of Moshe Rabbeinu, on the number of people at the demonstrations who came into the palace to pressure Paro and so on. It would have been the wrong focus. So the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu initially fails and then is re calibrated as a member of the Jewish people and as a, a, a messenger of God, not as a politician, not as a civil rights leader himself. So now the, the real drama unfolds between Paro and Hashem, not between Paro and Moshe. And we see that Paro is slowly but surely being educated to recognize God and to recognize what God's will is for the Egyptians and for the Jewish people. So Bezrat Hashem, next week we will continue uh, to study the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim, probably what we'll do is we should have time to discuss both the uh, makot that are mentioned specifically in Parshat Bo, as well as the end of Parshat Vayra, as it's all one continuous development, and we'll be able to see that through to the uh, to the actual Exodus. But I think the main point I wanted to make tonight was this shift and and how it's very timely that we see the same distinction between the civil rights leaders and Moshe Rabbeinu, that on one hand, both were motivated or inspired by a religious vision of justice and equality and freedom. But, Moshe, but the difference was that here, the focus is not on the communicator uh, of the message or the human leader, but it's on the redemptive process that's happening uh, by Hashem through the, uh, through the message and through the words of Moshe Rabbeinu. So everyone have a wonderful evening. And as Hashem,